This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We're featuring a series this month called 2019 to Look Ahead. Right now, we're going to focus on Latin America. And in the last 12 months, in countries like Brazil, Cuba, and Mexico, they have new leadership. Brazil elected a far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, while Mexico has its first leftist president in seven decades, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. And for the first time in over 50 years, the leader of Cuba is not named Castro. It's Miguel Diaz-Canel. In the meantime, Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro was sworn in last week for his second term, even though his re-election is being called illegitimate and the country is in economic turmoil. We examine many of these issues with William Burke White, director of the Perry World House here at the University of Pennsylvania and also a law professor here at the University of Pennsylvania. And also joining us, Benjamin Gadan, who's a senior advisor to the Latin American program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. He's also an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University and a former South American director of the National Security Council at the White House. Bill, Happy New Year to you. Glad to be back. Thank you. you. As well. Benjamin, great to have you joining us today. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. I, I guess we should start with Venezuela because, Bill, this seems to be in the most crisis right now. And what's worse is that even with the re-election, there seems to be no end in sight for what's going on in Venezuela right now. Yeah, so Maduro now gets a second term after what was clearly a, uh, a rigged election without meaningful uh, opposition or competition, uh, but doesn't seem to have a platform or a program. Venezuela has been in a state of economic and political collapse now for several years, uh, and it's unclear whether there's anything that can pull Venezuela out of it, but certainly uh, a second term from Maduro seems unlikely to do so. Benjamin, what's amazing to me is I saw a, a recent report by the IMF that's predicting an inflation rate of 10 million percent for Venezuela. And th that number alone just kind of boggles the mind a little bit. Yeah, I mean, the, the scale of the economic mismanagement is extraordinary. I think we focus a lot, understandably, on the humanitarian crisis, on the degradation of Venezuela's democracy. But the economic management really has been stunningly bad for, for a very long time. And hyperinflation, unfortunately, is not a new phenomenon for Venezuela. Is there even a point where you have to believe because of the uh, seeming illegality of the election, Benjamin, uh, that Maduro will try and do something in the next few years so that he can try and keep himself as the president of, uh, of Venezuela moving forward? I think he steadily eroded all the checks and balances that had existed in what had been a robust democracy um, and one of the wealthiest countries in South America. I think he has perpetuated himself in power using um, every tool in the book in terms of repressing dissent, jailing his political opposition, disbanding political parties, and stealing an election. I don't, I don't think he needs to do much more at this point to solidify his dictatorship from a political standpoint. From an economic standpoint, I think you know his uh, regime is quite fragile. Yeah, we've watched uh, time and time again as the Venezuelan people, to some degree, have have uh, revolted, but nothing has come of it. There have been protests on the streets. Uh, there's economic chaos, um, but none of it is quite enough to, to topple him. So I do agree uh, with Benjamin that he is pretty well politically protected at this point. Uh, it's going to take something uh, more uh, dramatic than anything we've seen to date to push him out of power. Uh, but certainly, if he wants to bring his country uh, back into the global economy, uh, he's going to have enormous work ahead of him. There is a lot of pressure being put on Venezuela by other countries 
in that part of the world right now. But how much impact do you think that they, they may or may not actually have, Bill? Uh, at this point, very little. Um, whether it's from the United States or, or Europe, uh, there has not been uh, enough pressure to, to meaningfully change the course of events there. Uh, and while, yes, there's been pressure, Venezuela still does have uh, its uh, some friends in the region uh, and has been able to sort of insulate itself um, from the global economy. The biggest challenge for Venezuela uh, is that it really can't sell as much of its energy uh, overseas as it would like to, uh, and it can't effectively exploit that energy, but it has a huge resource base there uh, that does give uh, the regime some cushion. Benjamin? Yeah, I think the inability to take advantage of that resource, I mean, it can't control global oil prices. It contains the biggest oil reserves in the world, but it has this steady decrease in production that has really been devastating to its capabilities to import basic goods. This is why you see scarcities of food and medicine. But even more importantly, for the perspective of regime stability, to be able to have enough rents to distribute to regime elites and to the military and to a lot of corrupt actors that the regime depends upon for loyalty. How significant is the the migrant crisis in that part of the world right now, in your mind, Benjamin? It's the biggest in, in modern Latin American history. It's over three million at this point. Probably half of them are in Colombia, a neighboring country that is grappling with its own internal challenges right now with a, a fragile peace agreement after a 50-year civil conflict. It has sent hundreds of thousands elsewhere to Brazil, as far south as Argentina and Uruguay, to Ecuador and Peru. It's even burdening some small Caribbean islands off the Venezuelan coast. It's extraordinarily difficult for a lot of these countries to continue sustaining the refugee and migrant services that they're trying to provide. Although I must say, compared to the United States and much of Europe, um, Latin Americans have been quite welcoming of these Venezuelan migrants, though the conditions are difficult they face throughout the region. Uh, I agree with that. The one uh, notable exception to that, we're going to talk about Brazil as, as we go on, uh, is uh, the new government in Brazil has just actually withdrawn uh, from the new uh, migration convention that was signed in Marrakesh earlier this year, I guess last, uh, last calendar year, uh, as part of a resistance against migration uh, and refugee flows from Venezuela uh, and elsewhere. So while Latin America has generally been very tolerant. Uh, we're seeing some changes in that uh, stemming largely from Bolsonaro. I was going to say, is it his policy specifically that's it, driving the change? It is. Brazil had actually originally uh, signed uh, up to this uh, new migration accord, uh, which actually would not have created any binding obligations. It was a sort of non-binding document. And one of the first things he did uh, after assuming the presidency was to withdraw Brazil uh, from the accord, stating particularly uh, the, the flow of migrants and refugees from Venezuela. Venezuela uh, as one of his reasons for doing so. You mentioned Bolsonaro, so let's switch to Brazil for a little bit. And he is now in office, uh, running the uh, running the country at this point. And, and we've talked about it uh, a couple of times about how this becomes a very important time for Brazil because of some of the economic issues, some of the corruption issues that have been that have been really hampering Brazil over the last few years. Yeah, you know, the, the first few weeks of Bolsonaro's government remind me uh, of the first few weeks after Donald Trump was inaugurated in many ways. Um, he has taken uh, some bold steps uh, on issues that are particularly salient um, to his political base. Um, that includes things like withdrawing from the Migration Accord, um, yeah. beginning a process to liberalize gun ownership, which is something he you know promotes in, in Brazil. Um, and so you're seeing him take uh, kind of 
bold steps on on some social issues uh, where where he has some authority, closing, for example, the labor ministry. Um, you also see him starting uh, a, a broader reform process. And the question is, will he be yeah. successful at that? That's one of the reasons the Brazilian economy has actually done quite well um, so far since he, he came into office, is an expectation that maybe he'll be able to crack through uh, some of that corruption uh, and some of the reform of, of the red tape that's needed in Brazil. Benjamin, your thoughts on Mr. Bolsonaro? Yeah, I think the reactions have been extreme and, and quite mixed. I think there's a lot of understandable concern about his approach to to treating vulnerable communities, to human rights issues, to the protection of, of democratic norms, mostly given the rhetoric that he expressed on the campaign and, and throughout his long career in Congress. On the other hand, yeah, there's a lot of optimism and enthusiasm among investors in the United States and elsewhere. The, the one caveat is that it will be extraordinarily difficult for him to pull off the scale of reforms that he is now promising. He has this University of Chicago-trained economist yeah. um, who is his finance minister. He's promising broad privatizations and a market liberal in a country where the business elite will oppose it and many powerful entities within the political system as well will not be on board. So it's certainly not guaranteed he'll be able to get even close to what he's pledged. But it, it is seemingly an important part to it, Benjamin, that, that the economy in Brazil does need to be addressed. And going back to uh, what we saw in the run-up to the Olympics a couple of years ago, we saw all of the issues that are, are surrounding that country right now. So it, it's not like it's something that doesn't need to be addressed. It's, it's I guess, Yes, whether or not this uh, this University of Chicago uh, person is going to be able to bring this uh, this type of economic policy change forward. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I think the authority doesn't rest entirely in the executive branch, as it does in, in many democratic systems. And, and so I think there are legitimate questions about how far they can push. I think there's no question that a market liberalization would really activate the Brazilian economy. Greater trade openness would help Brazil, like Argentina, its neighbor, is one of the most closed economies on Earth. Um, particularly of its scale, as well as the corruption issue, because these things are linked. The bigger the state and the bigger the state involvement in the economy, the greater the opportunities for corruption. And as we saw with the car wash and Odebrecht investigations in Brazil, they have realized that threat. He also mentioned, uh, Benjamin, wanting to try and see if he can rein in the amount of homicides in in that country as well, which I believe was about 64,000 in 2017. And and that seemingly is, obviously, if you're trying to win an election, that's a good point to try and and, and drum up support. The question is whether or not he's actually going to do anything to try and, you know, rein in some of the crime that's in that country. I think in that case, he has great maneuverability, but I am much less optimistic that he will achieve anything productive. He's taking what in Latin America is often known as the mano dura, the the hard line, um, strong-fisted approach to law enforcement, and it's one that is broadly discredited. I mean, you have a police force that's not uh, perfectly trained and and, uh, funded that will go in. Um, He has encouraged them to take on criminals not through investigations, but rather through Um, very aggressive paramilitary-type raids on dangerous and marginal communities. I don't think he's going to have a lot of success. I do think he will have a lot of political support, at least initially, uh, notwithstanding concerns about civil liberties. There, understandably, in Brazil, is a great desire for some reaction to the high levels of violent crime. And and I have to say that, you know, one of his major strategies for reining in uh, murder in in the the 
murder capital of the world, uh, is to make it easier for Brazilians to own guns, to get yeah. rid of things like psychological checks on gun ownership, to allow open carrying of weapons. We've seen how well that works in the United States as a strategy. Uh, mm. I'm not sure that's the right strategy. But, you know, part of the challenge that we're facing here is that on a lot of these social issues, uh, there are real concerns uh, about Bolsonaro's approach, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, the environment, whether it's native populations, whether it's gun ownership. Yet there's a strong desire for a, a tough leader in Brazil to solve some of the economic and corruption challenges. And so right. when we talk about him, we can't sort of forget um, the populist, nationalist, uh, ugly side of, uh, of his campaign anyway. Uh, at the same time, we have a lot of hope um, for a leader for the first time after many, many years um, coming in to, to sort of maybe clean things up a little in the political space. And, and that's going to be a, a tough space for us on the outside to make judgments about. Is there an expectation, Benjamin, that that cleanup can actually take place because the story in, in, in that country for several years now has been about all of the corruption at the political level, uh, not only at, at, at really at the national level, but at the state level as well. Yeah, I mean, I think Brazil, frankly, is an anti-corruption success story. And it's hard to conceive of it in that light, given what has come to light in recent years about the levels of corruption in government and in the private sector. But the reality is Brazil has done what no major country in Latin America has ever done, which is target current political authorities, meaning not one government targeting its predecessor, and economic elites of the highest strata. So I think Brazil, if it could carry on on that, and if the Brazilian voters, their disenchantment with their political system doesn't lead them to further rash decisions, like what has caused the emergence of Bolsonaro himself. I think Brazil actually is on a good path to stronger democratic institutions and, and really establishing the rule of law. Argentina is another uh, country which uh, was mentioned a second ago that's going through its own levels of economic crisis right now. Yeah, President Macri is having a, a hard go at the moment down in Buenos Aires. Uh, the uh, Argentine economy has really stalled over the last year. Uh, inflation has increased significantly. Um, the Argentine government has had to intervene to try to prop up uh, the Argentine peso. And it's, it is um, not a promising outlook for Argentina at the moment. Um, politically, they have have some fewer problems than perhaps Brazil does, but they have an election coming up. And what we're likely to see is uh, Madame Kirchner, who served uh, as president uh, uh, you know, uh, back a few years ago, running against Macri. She will be a populist. He'll be uh, more of a, a center uh, right and on the economy. Uh, and Argentina having to sort of revisit what direction it's going to head after Macri's austerity efforts over his first term have really failed to, uh, to yield any fruit. Benjamin? Yeah, it's not easy to run for office on the economic record that, that Mauricio Macri will bring to voters. He had his last year um, an inflation rate that probably will be recorded at around 50 percent, in addition to a recession that he brings into this 2019 election year. That is a very difficult agenda um, to proceed. However, I will say that he comes in having some credibility in blaming external factors and blaming the economic inheritance from that very same Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner that we referenced earlier. Um, I think many of his base will still understand that the wreckage he inherited from the last populist experiment um, would not logically lead voters to elect the populist once again. Mexico also with a new president as well, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. He has a variety of things that, that he has to deal with. Obviously, what's going on at the U.S.-Mexico border, but now 
immigration has become an issue from what we read that Mexico is looking at their own southern border into Central America as, a, as an issue. Yeah, Mexico has a bigger immigration challenge than than uh, we do uh, in the sense that, um, you know, the concerns that, that Donald Trump has expressed are usually not about Mexicans crossing the border, uh, but about people who started further south. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, figuring out how to uh, respond to the inward flow of migration to Mexico uh, is certainly a challenge. But more broadly, um, he has to, to really chart, uh, you know, what does uh, a, a, a more left, uh, you know, oriented uh, economic and, and political outlook look like for Mexico? Some of the first steps have been a little rocky. Uh, the decision to, you know, to suspend the construction or cancel the construction of the New Mexico City airport uh, will have big yeah. economic ramifications uh, and seems to be playing more to a base than really looking hard at uh, Mexico's best uh, economic prospects. Benjamin? Yeah, I think on migration, it's interesting. On the one hand, the new president of Mexico is seeking to avoid any confrontations with President Trump in the United States, and for that reason has been willing to play ball on keeping some of these Central American migrants in Mexico while, for example, their asylum applications are processed north of the border. On the other hand, he is pushing for addressing what we call the root causes of this migration, and he has said that he would like to invest tens of millions of dollars or billions of dollars in northern Central America, in Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador to try to address the factors that are pushing these migrants through Mexico and toward the United States. The problem there is the United States occasionally supports that policy under the Trump administration, but then episodically threatens to pull that foreign assistance as well. And so it's unclear he will have the resources or a consistent partner in that effort. Where does he stand on the on the new trade agreement between the United States, Canada and Mexico? His hope was that it was negotiated and signed before he took office. It wasn't a negotiation he had hoped to inherit, and it is an agreement that he now supports. I think he is very inwardly focused. He does not seek to, for example, exert leadership in Latin America on the Venezuela issue. And as I referenced, he seeks not to have confrontation with the United States. To do that, he needs to settle the the NAFTA renegotiation because this is a core issue and you cannot disentangle the Mexican economy from that of the United States. And so I think his very you know closely held belief is that they need to approve it in all their congresses and to do so quickly. Yeah, and the new uh, the new U.S. Uh, Mexico Canada uh, agreement is actually very similar to NAFTA, which preceded it. So uh, the negotiations there are salient. Some content requirements and so forth do have a big impact on, say, the Mexican auto industry. Uh, But fundamentally, the New Deal is not so dissimilar. uh, And it's not, I I think it's important to him. But again, it's not central to his core agenda, which is very much uh, a domestic agenda uh, that he's charting forward for Mexico. So so specifically, what do you think are his most important issues that that he needs to tackle for, for Mexico, for that economy, for that country, in order to continue to build them up. Uh, in the trade space uh, with the U.S., I think largely that is making sure uh, that NAFTA stays in place and that that continues to operate and making sure that content requirements in, in some of the specifics of the deal um, don't make it impossible for cars made in Mexico to be sold in the United States, for example. Uh, more broadly speaking, however, I think it's figuring out how to keep a Mexican economy uh, moving forward and Strong, making sure that um, uh, you know that the that there's economic growth in Mexico uh, yeah. and that it looks you know uh, more populist and leftist in nature to placate the base that elected him. Benjamin, new leadership in Cuba, but how much of it will be pretty much the same than than what we've seen over the last half century with the Castros? 
Yeah, I think the expectations are modest, at least in the short term. The the transition has been very much managed still by the Castro family, in this case by Raul Castro, who is still around and active. Um, the economic liberalization there, even in the period of rapprochement with the United States, was very modest and very slow going. Now, with a hostile United States, it doesn't seem like it will be much more rapid. What about the uh, what about the potential further investment from China into into that region? Uh, enormous, and China is sitting there looking, I think, at every opportunity uh, to invest uh, in the region. We're already seeing investment uh, in in some of the places uh, that are most concerning. Venezuela, for example, um, being being one of them. Uh, I think China is looking at a U.S. withdrawal from the region uh, as an opportunity to expand their influence, and and they'll continue to do so anywhere that there's an opportunity. Benjamin, your thoughts? Yeah, the Chinese money is absolutely irresistible to Latin American governments. There's a huge infrastructure gap in the region, and they just cannot say no to Beijing. It'll be interesting to see how Bolsonaro in Brazil reacts. He ran, much like Mauricio Macri did, um, on a platform of hostility to China or at minimum skepticism about the, the role of Chinese finance in Latin America. And I think he will likely change his mind, just as Mauricio Macri did in Argentina, and realize that there's just no one else offering those kind of loans for these kinds of projects. Right, and when the, when the check is, is standing right there in front of you, Benjamin, it's very hard to turn it down, especially when you have the, the numbers of issues that you have in some of these countries right now. That's right. That's absolutely correct. And look, going back to the corruption discussion we had earlier, it makes it difficult to get private sector investment. They have a model yeah. of public-private partnerships that is supposed to be an alternative to Chinese finance and to bring in U.S. multinationals. But look, the corruption really increases the risks to those companies. The profits are already modest that, that are promised by a lot of these infrastructure initiatives. And so there you go. Again, it's the Chinese money that they turn to. Though I will say there are a few examples now coming out of Africa where the Chinese have been investing for a long time that may give some of these Latin American leaders pause. Um, namely, when, for example, uh, the ports of, of Kenya uh, are suddenly now all collateral for loans to China. Uh, and there's a, a popular blowback of saying, wait a minute, you've, you've given the Chinese our ports. It may cause some of the Latin American countries um, to say, wait a minute, do we really want to take the same deals that were offered, or do we need a different path uh, to welcome Chinese investment, but perhaps with a little more protection? Great uh, talking with you both, Bill. Great seeing you. Happy Pleasure New Year's Year. Thank you. Ben, great to have you with us today. Thank you, sir. Likewise. Thank you. William Burke White from here at the University of Pennsylvania, Benjamin Gadan uh, from uh, the Woodrow Wilson Center, and also an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 